I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello for the second time this week. Welcome to part two of episode nine of Talking With Cancer. As I mentioned on Tuesday, I've split this episode into two parts. So part one is me talking to a young man called Adam who has thyroid cancer. And part two is today's episode, which is me talking to a gentleman called David Chill, who I approached through the Facebook group, The Ross Wonders. And it was just lovely to talk to David, actually. He was really open and generous in sharing his story. Like I've said before, that's not an easy thing to do. And so I really appreciate both him and Adam doing that for me on this episode. We talked about the Ross Wonders support group and what that means to both of us. We talked about remedies for hiccups. And actually, that was something he discovered on the Ross One group. So they're there for lots of different things, which is really great. We talked a lot about when he was first diagnosed, going into a clinical trial at that time with a drug that he's still on. He has also kind of moved through and has looked at different treatment options as well over the years. And I think as well, he talks really interestingly about the time he decided to go public with his story because David actually became a writer. This was his long-time dream. And when he got the diagnosis, he decided to fulfil that dream and he became a writer of crime fiction. And a few years into that, uh, which was obviously a few years into his diagnosis, he decided to share his story. And I thought that was really interesting at what point he decided to do that and why, and the response that he got. What I'm finding is that when people are brave enough, it takes a lot of courage to stand up and say, I've got cancer and this is my story, because there are still so many taboos around it and so much shame around it. We talked about shame in the biotech episode with Garrow Arman about how his mother was so ashamed to have breast cancer. So yeah, I'm interested to share David's story, but also that element of of what he went through, I think is really important. So stay tuned. Here is the interview with David Chill. So I'm really excited with my guest this week because, well, we don't really know each other. And it was a bit of a whim, this one, but I came across him on a Facebook group. We're going to talk about that. And I just reached out to him and said, could I interview you? Because I thought he had a really interesting story. And when I looked even deeper into it, it was even more interesting. So David Chill is joining me today. He's all the way across the pond in L.A. Thank you so much for being here on Talking With Cancer, David. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, it's really nice of you. So, yeah, I mentioned just then that we're both part of a um, a Facebook group called The Ross Wonders. I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but I think we should probably 
talk a bit more about it and what it's there for and how we use it before I come on to you more specifically. So, yeah, tell me how you interact with the group. Well, the Rust Wonders is, uh, to a large extent, a support group, for me anyway. They also have been experimenting with developing new treatments for lung cancer, especially for people that have had the Ross one rearrangement. For me, it's more of a uh, group to interact with, share stories with. If people have a problem, especially people who are newly diagnosed, they're, you know, they're looking for information, and this is a good source for people because they'll throw out a question, and invariably there'll be a few people who've experienced the same thing, can share their stories, can tell them you know, what to expect. And sometimes, you know, you get some some things you don't get from doctors. A while ago, I was having a bad problem with hiccups when I was trying to go to bed. I went on and I uh, asked if anybody knew how to deal with this. And somebody came up with a homeopathic remedy of take a spoonful of peanut butter, hold your breath for 10 seconds, which sounds ridiculous, but I tried it and it worked. And, you know, when you've been trying to go to sleep for an hour and you can't because you've got these hiccups, it was driving me nuts. But this is where a patient who's experienced the same thing can provide a, you know, a workable remedy that, you know, maybe a doctor wouldn't know. So it's a great support group. Yeah. So basically, you and I both have the ROS1 gene, which is the mutating gene that kind of got turned on for some reason and caused the cancer. The difference between you and I is that you have lung cancer and I have thyroid cancer. Now, what's very unusual is to have ROS1 with thyroid. So these groups, I'm a member of a few different ones, are really valuable, like you say, because, you know, my doctor might not treat someone in the same way or they don't have the data because it's just not actually that common. So it's really helpful in terms of tips like that. But also, yeah, connecting a community. It's really informative, like you say, clinical trials. They talk about things like that on there. Are there any other groups that you're, you've joined since you had cancer? There were a number of online groups. Cancer Grace was one. There are a few others. I I don't really go on them as much. I think when you're first diagnosed, you're seeking out information. You you go onto these groups or chat rooms and try and find out more. But as I've been on it, I've been living with this for 10 years, I don't need as much information. So for me, it's more of a support group. And having found the Ross Wonders has been helpful because these are people that have the exact same genetic mutation as I do. So they understand the protocols and <laughs> it's targeted. It's a targeted group. So, mm. um, And also international, like you say, and that's another interesting thing because people are receiving different treatment and different information depending on where they are in the world. So, so you talked about the fact that you were diagnosed 10 years ago And that was the post that you put up on the group to say, look, it's my 10-year anniversary and here's my story. And I was like, that's great. So that's why I connected with you. So can you just relay that for us, please? So 10 years ago, it was March 2012, I found I was having some trouble breathing. When I would take a deep breath, I would get a pain in my back, which was unusual. So I went to the doctor And I expected him to send me to an orthopedist. 
And instead, he sent me in for a chest X-ray. And he called me later that day and said, we found a small mass on your left lung, and we'd like you to go in for a CT scan. So I did that the next day and did a PET scan as well. And then he sent me to a respiratory specialist the following day because the scans revealed fluid in the lung. So the respiratory specialist drained the fluid and said he would test it and get back to me the following week. And it was in March, and my son was 13 at the time, and uh, he was on spring break. So we were planning a trip to Arizona, which we figured, well, we might as well take. And we're driving through, we went to Phoenix and on our way to the Grand Canyon. And uh, we were in Sedona when I got the call from the respiratory specialist who said, we have reviewed the fluid and found malignancies. I didn't know much about cancer. But I didn't know there were four stages. And I said, well, what's stage four? And I said, oh, my God. And then he tried to reassure me by saying, don't worry. There are lots of new treatments coming up. I have had patients live for three years on some of these treatments. Oh. And I was going, oh, my You're God. A, a week ago, I thought I was in perfect health. And now I'm looking at three years as, you know, a potential life expectancy. And he wants you to think that that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, I said, thank you, hung up, and I never talked to him again. Now, <laughs> I spent the rest of the trip, you know, we went through the Grand Canyon and then we were on to Las Vegas. But in some ways, it was kind of helpful because I had a lot of time to drive and think about how to process this and what to do. It was unfortunate in another sense because I told my wife, of course, but my 13-year-old son was in the car with us and I wasn't ready to tell him yet. Yeah. So we couldn't talk about it in the car. And finally, you know, we got home and we were able to uh, transition to an oncologist. And uh, he did some genetic testing and they weren't able to find any mutations at the time. Remember, this is March of 2012. So they were looking for ALK, EGFR. Yeah, this was long before the kind of biomarker investigations, yeah. Yes. So they put me on chemo. I did six cycles of what's called a triplet, Olympta, Avastin, and Carboplatin, and it actually did work. The tumor shrunk from, uh, I think it was about three centimeters down to two centimeters, which you know is significant. Yeah. But after, uh, I think it was the third or fourth cycle of chemo, my doctor said, hey, I've heard about a clinical trial down at UC Irvine. It's for lung cancer patients who have this ROS1 rearrangement. We don't know if you have it and the chances are low, but we have nothing to lose. Should we send a sample in for testing? And I said, sure. So I went down to UC Irvine and met with uh, Dr. Wu, who's a wonderful, wonderful scientist. You know, the statistics are only 2% of lung cancer patients have this ROS1 rearrangement. But as I found out later, People who have ROS1 often are younger, non-smokers. There are very specific things about them that are unusual. Now, the um, obviously, after five weeks, uh, came back positive, and I did 
have the WAS-1 rearrangement. So Dr. Wu called me with this wonderful news that I was able to join the trial. And I said, that's great. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> and I think he was a little surprised because, you know, here he's offering me this, you know, great opportunity. But in my mind, I wanted to think about it. And I talked to my oncologist and he said, well, we see that the chemo is working very well. You might want to stay on it. You have to remember back then, I didn't know whether this drug in spolcrozotinum would be effective or not. It was a clinical trial. So trials are experiments. His sense was, you know, let's stay with the tried and true. But he also said, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. I went to see a lung cancer specialist at Cedars, and I talked to him as a second opinion. And that was a difficult conversation because he's more of a scientist. And uh, he was concerned, well, if we put you on the trial and, you know, the cancer goes away, we won't be sure if it's the chrysotinum that did it or if it's the chemo you've been on that did it. And I'm thinking, well, that's probably true, but I'm more concerned with whether it's going to work for me. I've got very selfish motivations here. So I kept pressing him, what do you think I should do? And, you know, I do market research for a living. I moderate focus groups. So I interview people and I'm, you know, good at asking different questions to get to the same place. So I kept asking him, you know, if, if this were you, what would you do? If, this, you know, if I were your brother, what would you suggest? Which I'm actually sorry I asked now because you really don't know. Maybe he doesn't like his brother. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, but finally, I think I pestered him enough that he was a little exasperated and said, look, we know what chemo is. It's not a cure. We don't know what chrysotinum is. Maybe it's a cure. And that's kind of what I needed. I needed hope. I needed to know that there was a, a possible home run out there because my goal was to live an, as normal a life for as long as I could. And Prisodinum seemed to offer me that opportunity. So I decided to go on the trial. Uh, I went on the trial. I began September 28th, 2012. A year or so, it was uh, fine. Cancer was stable, the tumors weren't growing. And then they noticed the tumors shrunk significantly on one CT scan. Great, it's working super. And Hang then on, the David, after a year? Yeah. So sorry, how regularly were you getting scanned in that? Study? I was getting scanned every two months. And they were the just saying year. it was stably, it was, it was, it was stable. stable. But after and a they, year, it started to shrink. The chemo helped shrink the tumors by about 70%. So they were fairly small. I think the chrysotin was basically keeping them small. It was suppressing whatever it was that tends to accelerate growth and spread of tumors. But after a year, they noticed a big decline in the size of the tumor. And then two months after that, they noticed a big jump back to where it was. And they were concerned, well, it looks like the cancer is back and we might have to remove you from the trial. And go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And I kept saying, can we look at other things? Um, I'm very lucky. I have a number of family members who are doctors. And I have one, the wife of one of my cousins is a radiologist. So I sent the disc of my scans to her and she looked at them and she said, well, 
this decline in your size of your tumors wasn't really a decline. They didn't use contrast when they did the CT scan, so it appears to be smaller. When you did the most recent scan and it looked like the tumors had grown, they did use contrast. So it's not like there was a change in the size of the tumor. It was a change in the protocol of what they did. For whatever reason, they didn't use contrast that one time. And it was like, okay. <laughs> wow. I'm back on the trial. But, you know, when I was talking with Dr. Wu and people, he was saying, you know, there are people who do have progression over a period of time and do have to go on to a different medication. But for me, it was working and it kept continuing to work. And after a couple of years, the scans seemed to indicate that there was virtually nothing there and whatever tumors might have been there might now be scar tissue. So it's hard to tell with scans because they're just pictures, but the crizotin was working and I have been on it for over 10 years now. My 10-year anniversary was uh, a few weeks ago. I know because of the ROS1 gene, you know, it can never turn off by itself, which is why you're on the medication. You're still on the treatment. But would you call yourself cancer-free? <laughs> I mean, again, it's just terminology. What does it matter? Do you describe yourself as a cancer patient? <laughs> um, I tend to, yes, because I feel that once you're in this club, you're in it for life and it can always come back. I don't like using the word remission. Maybe it's um, a little superstitious, but... I don't feel like you really beat cancer, although, you know, 10 years is pretty good. I'm always wary that something may come back at some point. And it actually, I did have an a situation recently where my oncologist noticed last year, hey, you've got a new nodule in your lung. And it was seven millimeters, which is pretty small, but they went back in time and they saw it was five millimeters the year before, three millimeters the year before that. So it was small. It was growing slowly, but it was there. They, yeah. they said, this is not nothing. And this past February, it measured eight millimeters. So my oncologist, and this was, by the way, a new oncologist, my my original oncologist retired after nine years, and uh, that was kind of a blow because he had gotten me through mm, so much. Yeah. And the new oncologist said, well, you know, we can't do a biopsy unless the tumor or nodule is 10 millimeters. So we'd like to just wait and see. And that was kind of troubling to me. I was looking for, I don't know, I'm the person, type of person who likes to act and do stuff. Of course. So I went to see a surgeon, and his initial reaction was, well, I can go pull that out. It shouldn't be a big deal. And then he looked at it a little further. And when I was first diagnosed and I had fluid in the lung, I did what's called a pleurodesis. Or I didn't do it. I, I had it done. It basically is called, it's called a talc procedure where it, it prevents fluid from building up. And where this new nodule was, was right next to where the pleurodesis was. So it would have been a lot more difficult to get that little nodule out just because of location. So he said, well, surgery is kind of off the table. It can be done, but I wouldn't recommend it. And he also said a biopsy is going to be difficult because of where it is. So 
I went back to my oncologist and said, well, waiting doesn't seem like a great option, but I can't do surgery. We can't do a biopsy. What about targeted radiation? It feels like that's the only option. She said, well, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> I went to see a radiologist or what's called a radiation oncologist. And he said, well, it's eight millimeters now. I don't think you should wait because if it starts growing, I'd rather pull, I'd rather do radiation on an eight millimeter nodule than a 15 millimeter. So I would do it now. And uh, in April, I went in and did targeted radiation. I went in for five sessions over 10 days. It was basically painless. Prior to that, we did a uh, liquid biopsy, which is a blood test. And they tested for markers. And we were expecting to see ROS1 for this new nodule, but it did not turn up. What turned up was a different mutation called IDH1, which is more typically found in leukemia patients. So it was very unusual. So we can say there is no ROS1 that they can tell in my system now uh, what this new nodule is because there's no biopsy, they can't be sure. The radiation seemed to take care of it. and uh, That's good news. But yeah, going back to that question of mine, I suppose it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because like you say, when you've been diagnosed with cancer, I can't imagine what it must feel like to either try and transition out of that diagnosis, you know, however long that period is. Like you say, life will never be the same again. So regardless of your situation and your treatment and, you know, all the different terminology that goes with it, it's probably always hard to kind of really feel confident once you've had a diagnosis, I imagine. It sort of stays with you, doesn't it? It's always sitting there. I tend to have put it out of my mind a lot of times because I feel good, I'm healthy, I'm doing the same routines that I did 10 years ago. So uh, other than being 10 years older and suffering the, you know, a few eight more aches and pains that come with aging, mm. I do feel fine. So mm. it's out there. I don't ignore yeah. it. Yeah. But it's not a part, it's not a regular form not, of life. Yeah. Because obviously now targeted therapy is more common there are still trials and there's loads of new drugs coming on the market and being trialed all the time. Obviously, back then, you've talked about the fact it was a bit of a risk for you, but you were willing to take it. What were you told might be the risks and what did you actually feel on the drug and what do you feel today as a side effect? Well, I think the main side effect that they were concerned about was my vision because uh, chrysotin does kind of affect your vision in certain ways when you go from a... Uh, darkly lit room to a well-lit room, uh, begin to see a swirl of colors, which uh, is very unusual. And it's actually kind of interesting, so I didn't see it as a big problem. The issues that I did not anticipate were something called edema, which is swelling of the feet and the ankles. My legs are bigger, <laughs> my feet are bigger. There's a numbness in the bottom of my feet and numbness in my toes, which, you know, of all the maladies in the world, those are things I can live with pretty easily. The one serious complication that emerged was I had a blood clot in my leg. This was discovered by a nurse when I went in to um, get CT scans and it was a summer day and I was wearing shorts and she happened to notice, hey, your calves are swollen pretty good. And I said, well, yeah, it's the edema from this 
you know, we're not sure if it's from the chrysotinum or just from the ROS1 mutation. She said, I'm going to talk to the doctor about this. And he came in and looked at it and said, you know, I, I think I'd like you to go in for an ultrasound to have it tested. And I said, okay, uh, you know, should we do it tomorrow? And he goes, no, how about right now? <laughs> so he was kind of, you know, because with a blood clot, you know, things yeah. can happen. Yeah, they want to act on that quickly. That's interesting. Yeah, and so I went in, had it, and uh, yes, I did have a blood clot, and they put me on Eliquis. They said it was fairly small, and this is possibly, you know, one of the good things, you know, if there are good things with being diagnosed with various ailments, if you catch it quickly, when it's small, there are more options. Mm -hmm. And so I've been on Eliquis for four years, and the last time I did an ultrasound, there was no blood clot found. So that's good. And I think it's also possible because... They found the cancer 10 years ago fairly early mm. when the uh, nodule was three centimeters. They were able to deal with it before it spread right. all over the body. So yeah. Early detection is important. Did you have to see a cardiologist as well alongside this drug? No. no okay. It so was, it doesn't it not impact to heart. in the way that my, yeah, my drug was, does uh, on track. Yes. It was in the lung and it spread, spread to the pleural area, but that said. And in retrospect, my oncologist said, you probably weren't stage four, you're probably stage three B that hadn't spread to other organs. They thought they saw something in my kidney and my liver. As it turned out, those are just cysts because okay. they haven't changed in 10 years. Yeah. Wow. The reason I think I'm inspired is because obviously your story gives me a lot of hope. You know, I've been on the ontrectinib since March, not long at all. But what's interesting about the ontrectinib, and I don't know if it's the same with your drug, is that they say there's a window in which it works and then it stops working. And that's just what they see. So they're expecting on average between 12 and 24 months, they're expecting at that point, they'd have to move me on to another drug. Were you ever told anything like that? I guess it's a different scenario as well because you were actually one of the trials. Yes, because I was on the clinical trial, they didn't really know. The initial group that was on chrysotinum were called ALK, ALK patients with the ALK mutation. And they were looking at a, maybe a two years on uh, chrysotinum. As I discovered, slowly ROS1 patients were doing better. And they were looking at three to four years on average, which is, you know, the whole idea is to stick around until the next drug yeah, comes. Exactly. So you switch from one to another. <laughs> they don't know. And in my case, I'm one of the outliers. You know, I've for wow. 10 years. Well, so nobody listen, could have predicted it. I love that. So it feels to me as a real outsider, not really knowing you at all, like you really grabbed onto life after this diagnosis. You went on to write 13 books. <laughs> and it seems to me like, it, you know, it changed your life for the good, you know, I'm not suggesting you had to have the diagnosis in order to do that, but tell me a little bit about that and how you moved into writing crime novels and, you know, you're, yeah. Was that something you always wanted to do? Uh, yes. When I was in college, I read a Raymond Chandler mystery and uh, that hooked me on, on crime fiction. So I became a big fan of uh, reading these types of books. And when I was in my early 30s, I had gotten a little disillusioned with corporate life, and I took a year off, and I started writing novels. And uh, 
I got an agent, but I couldn't get anything published. I actually won part of a contest. I was third prize winner in uh, the St. Martin's Press Mystery Writers Contest. First prize was you got published. Third prize was you got a nice letter. So after about a year or two, I figured, well, I, give it, I gave it a shot. I put it away, and I went back into the corporate world. And I worked for Disney. I worked for DirecTV. And then in 2012, when I was diagnosed, told my employer because, you know, I was going on to chemo and I didn't know whether I was going to have hair loss or what the issues were going to be. And I told my boss about it and he gave me the standard line of just take care of yourself. Your health is the most important thing. And about two months later, I got a uh, offer of a severance package. Mm. So that came as quite a blow. It was a pretty good package, but, you know, I was not really prepared to you know, have that type of transition at that time yeah. because I was still going through chemo. I hadn't decided on going on to the trial, but, you know, life does what it does. So in some ways it was helpful because I did wind up taking a year off and I uh, used that year to kind of think about what I wanted to do and, you know, I had to take care of myself. And I was going down to UC Irvine, you know, in the beginning every month. So I needed time to do tests and see various doctors. At the end of 2012, my son had an English teacher that had told us he had just published a novel on Amazon. With the development of Amazon Kindle, uh, they were inviting authors to self-publish, which was, you know, a nice option. And I looked at it and I said, well, maybe I can do this. So I pulled one of my novels out of the drawer and, you know, dusted it off, rewrote it, refreshed it, because, you know, now we have voicemail and not answering machines and, you know, certain restaurants mm -hmm. have gone out of That's business. So I it. modernized it and I published it on Amazon and uh, it started to sell. And uh, as I wrote more books, I would include, hey, here's what's going on with my health, too. And people seem to really like that. So my life has become something of an open book. Yeah. And, well, uh, welcome to my world, David. Yeah. You know, I put everything out there. And I think actually it's interesting. It struck you there was a cancer, you know, pandemic, but also that people don't talk about it and people struggle to talk about it. So I think if you can talk about it, that helps other people to feel okay about their situation. And I think people should be open and talk about it. I've found that sharing has only benefited myself and other people. And so I keep doing it. <laughs> yes. And there is an unfortunate stigma related to lung cancer because there's an assumption you were a smoker, you had this coming to you. But a lot of people who have ROS1 and lung cancer were non-smokers, including myself. So we've had to deal with that. And even when I go in to see a doctor, they'd say, so were you a smoker or were you just unlucky? To tell them unlucky. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just touch on, which could well be a debate for another time, but Claire and I touched on the fact that most of my listeners are women and most of the people that follow me on social media are women. And we sort of discussed in an episode, do men struggle to kind of deal with topic, generally the topic of health? And then I had a really interesting conversation with a woman who's a trainer and she's got a really, a really interesting background in cancer, having worked in the healthcare system, 
but then going on to train as a personal trainer and a fitness instructor. And what she said, and it may be more, it may be more relevant to the UK. A lot of men are, are brought up sort of not really encouraged to stay on top of their health in the same way that women are. And therefore the subject of health presents itself in a very different way for men. And that's something that's cultural and that's something that's societal. And I asked you this question sort of off the podcast, like what does it feel like going through this as a man? And I just wonder whether there is a difference in terms of A, getting yourself checked early, which it sounds like you did, B, advocating for yourself, which it sounds like you do, C, talking about it, which you now do. So you are a bit of an enigma. Could you generalise rather than personalise that topic of gender and health? Yeah, I think, you know, men tend to internalise some of these things more and maybe try to, you know, gut it out, which is maybe not the best way. You know, one doctor told me that married men tend to live longer and you sometimes think it's because of, you know, companionship or, you know, whatever reasons, but in reality, it's because when they're not feeling well, their wives nag them to go to the doctor. And I mentioned, you know, I had this pain when I breathed deeply and I mentioned this to my wife and she said, well, you should go doctor about this and yeah finally yeah I did and it was interesting because you know when my doctor said I'd like you to do a chest x-ray the first thing I did was check my calendar because I was still working full-time I had gone to see him at lunch and I saw well okay my afternoon looks pretty free I guess I can go over to the imaging center and get a chest x-ray but I, I could have just as easily said oh gosh I got a 1:30 meeting I got to get back to I'll do this another time uh so had I done that you know, it's easy to to put things off. Mm. And I think maybe uh, maybe men might be a little more inclined to, to do that, to not worry about that. But also, you know, as men tend to not talk about these things as much mm. as women. Yes, in, in general, I think women like to express themselves and share, and, and men are maybe a little more inclined to not do that. Mm. So very generally speaking, I, I think there is definitely a gender difference, but I am obviously very glad doctor because uh, that led to early diagnosis and potentially life-saving medication at the right time. You know, timing is everything because had I been diagnosed two or three years earlier, there was no clinical trial. No. And had I been diagnosed two or three years, years later, the trial might have been closed. So, you know, even though I was unlucky in being diagnosed with lung cancer, I was lucky in terms of the timing of when yeah. I was diagnosed, as well as the fact that they couldn't identify it first, and I went on to chemo. Yeah, that was effective. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's that protocol which may have uh, been a reason for my longevity. Unfortunately, we don't know for sure about these things but that, that's what I've uh, that's my my conjecture yeah wonderful well it's a great story I can't wait to speak to you in 10 years time when it's your 20 year <laughs> anniversary and thanks thank so much for taking the time to talk to me today David I really appreciate it uh, thank you and and good luck to you on uh, your situation you know we're, we're all in the same club and uh, I, uh, when I when I sometimes post 
on Ross, the Ross Wonders, I, I was a little nervous because I felt like I was bragging about, hey, I've been around for seven, eight years, and people told me, no, 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 please continue to do so. It's inspirational. Oh, definitely. I think it's lovely. I think that's going back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's there for so many different yes. reasons, and that should be one of them. So, mm -hmm. yes, let's keep celebrating the good stories. Okay, Thank let's you. talk again yeah. in 10 years. <laughs> Definitely. Lovely to meet you, David. Have a great okay. day. Thank you, you too. Thanks. Wasn't he lovely? It was so nice to chat to him. I love that I've got these sort of connections with people all over the world. So Adam last week is living in France and David obviously lives in LA. Um, that's also a great thing about being able to connect through social media platforms and podcast platforms is just how international the reach is. Yeah, I'm really grateful to both my guests this week. They're brilliant people to talk to, really generous with their time. And um, I hope that you guys enjoyed it too. You can message me and let me know what you thought of this week's episodes. Did you like them being split into two? Or would you have preferred it to be one long episode? Send me an email. My address is hello at talkingwithcancer.com or I'm on Instagram talking underscore with cancer and you can get in touch about anything at all and you can also share your story if you'd like to because I am doing a feature on these episodes now called Voices with Cancer and that is the opportunity for anyone who has a cancer story you can share it with me via a voice note send it to me on an email and I'll play it out on an episode it just needs to be under two minutes long that's it really no other rules. So I'd love to hear from you. And I don't want to put any pressure, but I encourage you that if you feel brave to share your story. Thanks again, guys, for staying tuned. It's been lovely. Like I say, we're now like nine eps into this series, which has just been great. I have a really interesting chat with Rebecca Soffer. She is the author of The Modern Loss Handbook. And she has written a brilliant book, all about grief and loss and how we tackle grief and loss in this society and in this culture. And it's a really great interview and it's a really great book. So it's called The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. See you next week, guys. <laughs>